absolutely ridiculous. Hello, welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. As ever, Stuart Crawford and Christopher Sackfee, dying to go. Fellas, it's been, a, it's been a while. A lot has happened since we last spoke. Where do we start? <laughs> well, do we start at the, the end with the winners or do we start at the beginning, which was just after our last recording, i.e. like two hours before the, the talking point of the week, the Sal-Abugar match? Let's talk about it. Abu Algar and Asal, and then we'll, we'll we'll go to the top and bring it back in. Because I know you're dying, you're dying to say something. Yeah, chomping <laughs> at the bit. Well, I am, and I'm not because I feel like I'm just repeating myself from previous Asal matches, which is that it's, I don't think it's good for the game. I think um, I've got an entire page of notes that I took during the match, and I'll read out the last line, which just says summary: cheap disgrace. <laughs> I think that's all I need to say. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, just it actually started okay. The match, first two games weren't too bad. The third game is where it got really scrappy. Yeah, and actually, from from four two in the third game, the next fourteen points, only one of them was decided by a winner or an error. The other 13 of the 14 points were decided by strokes or no lets. Um, and 10 strokes in the third game just to get to 10 all. And that doesn't include no lets. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I, don't know if, I don't know if the announcers were... I thought I heard that there were only 15 total calls in the Marwan Abu Elgar match. I thought that I sounds heard, about right. It was yeah. pretty clean. Um, yeah. I mean, I know Marwan can sometimes create stoppages, but I didn't think he did. I think think the whole match um, and the round before was fairly fluent and clean squash. But yeah, it's just I don't know where to start with the Sal. I think I think it's getting to the point now where we have to think what can be done, whether that's through how he, how he's refed, whether there's anything opponents can do to clean the matches up or whether the PSA need to step in and um, don't know whether there's scope to issue um, certainly conduct games. Con- I know he's had a few sort of conduct warnings, conduct strokes, but I think it's now reaching the point where they have to look to go further, where he's, he loses a game. If it's if there's continual blocking and cheating, then I think that's the next step. The other thing that I think PSA can consider is whether he's deserving of a ban um, or certainly a fine but I think if you look at um, the punishment that Dasuki got when he um, sort of threw away the two games against Paul Call and lost 11 love 11 love I think he got a fine for bringing the game into disrepute and I would argue that Asal is probably worse what he's doing to the game than what Dasuki did Dasuki's actions only hurt himself I don't think that really affects the game overall but I think Asal's actions hurt the sport it's it's a it's a weird tough one too because he actually won the match with uh with two with two referee made calls right which um there's a terrible call at nine all which would have been a stroke for Abu oh that was and that that brutal that brutal block and then a no let at 11-10 match ball for Asal which I thought was also a bad call 
So it's like the ref hands him hands him the match after you know a hundred minutes and yeah. So it's just it's tough if it's like he 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 got rewarded for it in the end. There you know we'll get to this match after, but it was like poetic justice, right? Poetic squash justice. I actually wrote in my notes. Uh, that he he lost on on two two good blockouts in the match against Asuki um, to lose, but that also harsh calls potentially. But um, I guess got what he got what he had coming to him maybe there. Yeah, but just in that nine all in the fifth with Abu Agar, and and the ref had, had a couple of times sent messages to Asal as if to say like don't excessive movement off the ball, which it clearly was, but it was also a loose shot, and then to, all of a sudden just to to hand over a let. And I don't think there's an element where, and this is my take on it, Asal's doing everything, he's desperate to win, right? That's fine. His mindset is win at all costs. And everyone will have it, their take on that, and that's fu- Like, it's not great, really. Neither here nor there, the referees let him away with it. And if the official of the match is going to allow him to get away with it, and he's successful with it, he probably just thinks, well... It's working, so why wouldn't I continue to do it? Now that, that's that, and that's not to say that it's right, but maybe that's kind of partially how he's thinking. I think what's worse, you know, hitting a pretty average shot that is definitely not a winner. And before anyone knows what the outcome is between a referee decision or whatever, it's like he's screaming and sort of celebrating. There was that one, and then there was a there was a pretty clearly hit ten that he fist pumped. And then as soon as it got called down, he just picked his head up and walked to the, walked to the loser's box. Short term like, memory. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, that's something he's done consistently in the last sort of six months, but well, we've seen him on tour. I think Arthur, you've touched on the biggest difference between the, the match with Abogar and the quarterfinal against Suzuki was the standard and quality of the referee. Uh, I actually, I thought John Massarella in his match with Dasuki was man of the match, man of the tournament almost. <laughs> the way he handled Asal right from the start is the way that I think he has to be ref from now on, which is, and I know we've spoken about this in relation to Marwan a little bit and whether people deserve to be refed on reputation and if they've, if they've done things in the past, should that then be sort of held against them in the future? But I think in Asal's case, he's shown a fairly consistent pattern of behaviour that suggests that for the time being, he's not willing to change. Um, and I think a couple of times, Ralph Harenberg, who was the, the referee in the round before, tried to give a really strong decision to send a message. And then he would completely undermine himself by just giving a soft let or, I mean, like any decision. Like the fifth. Yeah, exactly. And if he's getting like one in his favour and then one against him, there's no incentive to change because... What he's shown is that he's he's able to handle those disruptions better than most players, and he's a good enough player that he gets through those matches. Um, but I thought John Massarella in the quarterfinal, when he played the Suzuki, was absolutely outstanding in terms of setting a very strong tone early and not deviating from it. He did give decisions to Suzuki uh, to to Asal when he sort of deserved them. When it was a clear stroke, he got them. But essentially, if he didn't clear a path to the ball or make every effort to go and play the ball himself he was never ever once in that match rewarded for it and I think that's that's the only way you're going to get through to him um, so yeah, yeah I think and I, and I think I think that will work because 
he's a clever lad. Like he's a smart kid. And I'm pretty sure like with that hard stance, he like, okay, well, I'm not going to get away with it today. And before long, as long as he can get consistently good refs, he'll adapt and then we'll be able to have a conversation about how bloody good a squash he is and yeah. a phenomenal athlete. Jeez. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a bit of a North American take here, which, uh, you know, you know, you guys aren't huge basketball fans, but, um, you know, I, I kind of, I started thinking about like a comparison between Mustafa Saul and LeBron James, right? Like LeBron James coming out of high school, absolute monster of a human, just kind of always knew he was going to be destined for the top of the game. Like everyone knew, you know, I think he was called the chosen one or whatever. And just massive, massive physical specimen, unique, uniquely talented, you know, just seems to be put here to play, you know, LeBron put here to play, play basketball, Assault put here to play squash, you know? And, but like, in my opinion, some people love LeBron. I'm a bit of a LeBron hater. I just think LeBron's a huge pain in the ass, but he's going to, but he gets away with it because like he's, he is LeBron James. And like, that's what makes me a little nervous is like Assault is going to be around for a long time. He's going to get to the top of the game eventually. And I have a, he could be a huge pain in the ass for a really long time, just like LeBron. <laughs> That's my take. Who, who's LeBron James? <laughs> exactly. I'm, a def, I'm definitely a bigger LeBron fan than I am a, a Sal fan. That's for sure. Um, again, just going back to the refereeing, it was a noticeable similarity in terms of a Sal trying to claim an injury break at the end of games. Um, so in the fifth game against Abogar, he takes an injury break um, and he's allowed to do it. And At the very end of his two minutes, he took it, He asked for three exactly. minutes. Exactly. So he has these two minutes between to, games. To put, then, tape on his, to put tape on his off arm. Yeah. <laughs> and Ralph Harenberg lets him get away with that. Um, then when they do finally get going in that first game, it should have been a clear stroke against Asal and he gave a let. Yeah. And that, that to me was a chance to set the tone in the fifth which he missed. That's why there was um, a counter drop on the front left. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he, I think at the third rally, he gets rewarded by, with a cheap stroke. So again, uh, he then celebrates the obvious let, thinking that it was a winner. Um, but just little things like that, just they all build up. The other one that really consistently frustrated me was when they said it was minimal interference, but... It might be minimal, but it's significant. And I've said this before, minimal and significant aren't quite the same. You can have minimal interference, but it can still be enough to make it almost impossible. And it's also so frustrating when, especially Johnny Williams actually did a great job of explaining this in the commentary, where when he's coming out of the back left, he kind of walks forward into you and just nudges you as you're going to the ball instead of sort of arcing and going more towards the center line and then forward. From there um and yeah it's, it's it's absurd that it's so obvious that i think the rest of us it's like absurd that the referee doesn't see that that's like totally the wrong like totally intentional yeah completely and there's you look a few at times it. sorry but there was a few times where he from there and then abu Algar was just trying to like hit the ball 
and he's on his leading leg and then his back leg comes because of that little tiny nudge. And then all of a sudden, both feet are right beside the sidewall and he's got a hell of a lot of space to cover on the right side of the court because of that minimal interference that had a significant outcome. <laughs> yeah. And you just get a little nudge just knocks you off balance. And we all know that if you want to hit the ball accurately, you need to be balanced and stable. Yeah. And suddenly you're going into the shot half a second before you're about to strike the ball and there's just a little bit of contact and suddenly you can't hit the ball as accurately. And I think um, Massarella really saw that and clamped down on it. Um, like I say, Johnny Williams did a great job of highlighting it at the time and pointing it out. And to me, that's the sort of thing that some refs just don't seem to pick up on. Or I understand why they say it's minimal and they try and encourage you to play the ball, but when it's happening, <laughs> When it's happening and happening as frequently as it does with a sal, then something has to be done. Um, yeah, minimal interference <laughs> that's caused by me maybe maybe taking a guess right, so my line to the back's a little off, and I bump hit, I bump the other person on the way to the ball, kind of caused by me more so than them. When I, as the hitter, like purposely get in the way to cause minimal interference, like that's a totally different situation. Yeah, exactly. So one um, thing he's—I'm sure he like he's a social—he likes the old social media. I'm sure he's seen both the praise and the criticism that he's received from various people in all walks of life and forums. But if you're in his team, surely the, the people who are influencing him should be like his coaches. I don't know who coaches him. I don't know who his trainers are. But you think they'd be kind of onto his case a little bit? I mean, I think. From what I gather over the last, you know, even on his come up to get out of the challenger tour, I mean, this is like extreme, an extremely regular occurrence that he's been coached to do, you know, win at all costs. I'm not sure who his coach is, but I find it hard to imagine that he's been coached to do that, but it certainly seems like he's not been discouraged to do, from it. There's no one there after a match like this saying that you need to sort this out. This is reflecting badly on you. It's, not doing you any favours. It's, it's almost like he's just being allowed to get away with it. Uh, he actually said after his ma- after he won um, that he was so pleased that his father would be proud of getting through that match. If I'm honest, his father should be absolutely ashamed that his son is playing the game in that way. Uh, that's my view. I certainly wouldn't want my, my son or daughter to be cheating their way to victory. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll find one last thing I will say to his credit that uh, Abu Ghar match, he won all three games, he won were tie breaks. And you normally expect sort of close situations to favour the more experienced player. But it's just credit to Asal for being able to keep his composure at the end of each game and being able to play so well when he supposedly lacks experience, but he just seems to be able to produce his best squash. And his best blocks, arguably, but but <laughs> well, he's think, able to keep it together right at the end of the games under real intense pressure. I think that's where he thrives, like when things are really tight. He, he makes it he makes it so hard for people, obviously physically, mentally, and just with how good of a squash player he is. That I think like there is this just there's got to be a bit of mental exhaustion after. Think about that game where there were ten strokes and a, and probably 10 other calls to get just to 10 all 
think about how like mentally and physically exhausting that is. And he's just, he thrives under it. Well, that game, actually, he, the last two rallies of that game, after all the lets and strokes and disruption, he finished that game with two backhand cross-court decks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, again, considering all the sort of disruption, is pretty remarkable that he can hold it together. And, I mean, it was 12-all, and then he went cross-court neck, next rally, cross-court neck, game over. Should we move on? Can we talk about the women's event now? Because I think I've had enough talking about the men. We'll come back to them later. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sherbini came up with the goods. You were right there, Mr. Crawford. Always right. I did fall asleep when you were making your predictions, but I assume you picked uh, Sherbini. Well, number one seed for a reason. Both there you of go. I mean, both number one seeds won, so don't need to look any further. But yeah, Sherbini... Um, there was a lot happened between sort of the quarters through to the final, but just in the end, she she was clearly the, the best player, especially the performance that she put in in the final against Gohar, who Gohar had actually looked in top form against Sobe in the, the semis. So, yeah, I thought she was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she was class. No doubt about it. Really only seemed to get pushed uh, against Hania. Yeah, and at some point she looked like she could lose that match. I mean, she got a good start, obviously, to go two love up. Um, but Hanya really started to get into her. And it reminded me of some of uh, Paul Cole's matches, just the way that Hanya was able to sort of slow the game down and extend the rallies, but do it in a way that sort of nullified Shabini's sort of assets of being able to attack. I don't think, um, I think Shabini likes the game to be played pretty fast and open. And Shabini, uh, sorry, Hanya kind of closed it down, slowed the pace down, and just made sure that she got the ball through to the back. And because the ball was warm and bouncy on, it seemed like it was what, 30 degrees or in the sort of 90s for, for dealing in Fahrenheit, then it was going to be hard to put the ball away. And Hanya just backed her movement, similar to. Like I say, Paul Call against, well, not so much in the final, but against Moman in the semis. It was the same sort of tactic. But even when she looked tired, she just got a great start in the fifth game against Hanya um, and then did enough early on in that game to, to hold a lead all the way through. Any other big, uh, obviously, good, good to, I think, like the, obviously, I think Amanda would love to have um, gone a little deeper here, but. Seems to have some good consistency going with with getting to getting to that semifinal type type position. Um, it just does show where kind of Sherbini is, and I mean Gohar Gohar had pretty impressive kind of run there as well. But uh, definitely shows where those top couple are right in relation. Yeah, she definitely looked. That's as good as I've seen Noran play since COVID was a thing. Um, yeah, agreed. She did actually make a final back at the Egyptian Open, but I thought she looked better this tournament. Um, yeah. You speaking of, speaking of Sobe and her run to the semis, Chris, I've got an interesting start for you. I know hopefully Amanda's listening. She might not even know this start herself, but that's the first time in her career uh, she's reached three consecutive semifinals at this level of tournament. She did it way, way back in 2014 when she was starting out on the tour at lower levels. But 
um, between the, the two black ball events and now Alguna, she's made at least the semis of all three events. So good sign that she's she's now potentially a top four player if she's making semis of all of these events. Boswell going to Chicago for the World Open. Yeah. Home turf. That's next, right? It is because Manchester has been pushed back again. So they were planning to have Manchester open, but it's not happening now until August, I believe. Certainly after the after the Worlds in Chicago. Other sort of performances that I know made notes on on the women's side were um, well in the final. Uh, Shabini was just so calm and relaxed the whole way through. Um, could have argued going into the final based on the semi-final performances that Gohar was probably playing a slightly better level, but Shabini just looked um, flawless. Um, she just seems to handle the pressure of being number one seed or world number one, takes everything in her stride. And even when she's had a rough sort of match in the semis against Hamami, she still goes in fully believing in herself and just sort of approaches it as a new match and expects to play her best again. So uh, I thought the biggest difference between the two of them was that Shabini just controls her length. Even on a really hot court, she never seems to overhit, whereas... Um, mentioned that Hamami was doing a good job of slowing it down and making sure she got the ball through to the back. I think Gohar, when she hits the ball really hard, it can sometimes sit up a little bit. Um, and because Shabini can take it in from the back of the court so well, it's not like finding the back wall is enough. It has to be finding the back wall and dropping onto the back wall. Um, and she did that a little, well, quite a lot better than Gohar, I thought. She had a nice hold as well off the back of the wall where she can show short all day long and just punch it deep. And, and she doesn't seem to mind the pace that Gohar hits at. Um, she seems to sort of feed off that and and that gives, because there's so much pace already on the ball, that actually allows her to hold and punch through it quite easily because she's not having to generate so much pace because there's already plenty of pace on the ball. So in some ways it sort of suits her to, she has less time to get on the ball early to, to threaten the hold. But once she is there, that extra pace that's on the ball sort of helps her hold. Yeah. As well as that, Gore has to recover from the previous shot just that little bit quicker. And so when you hold her, then she'll stop a little quicker and then she's got to move a little quicker. <laughs> yeah. The other thing she does better than anyone else that I can think of is that she straightens out the front really well. So when when she gets taken into the front, she quite often either uses the straight drop or the boast to drag you forward. And then if the ball's out in front, you're kind of forced to cross court and then she can step up and cut the next ball off in the volley. I feel like, Stuart, you're in a good position to start the Shabini Appreciation Club. Uh, I think I was a founding member. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But she's she's very good at sort of manipulating her racket to get the ball straight out the front, which just stops you sort of continuing that pressure. So even at full stretch, she just sort of punches it down the wall and you she can reset, whereas when she takes you short, you cross-court onto our volley, and then she applies more pressure on the volley. Um, but yeah, sounds like I've said enough about the great, <laughs> I think. I think I've said too much about how much I dislike Asal and too much about how much I love Shabini. The, uh, the Stuart Crawford Shabini Appreciation Hall Asal Haters Club. Yeah. <laughs> write, us, write us if you want him to send you a patch for your jacket. <laughs> 
Have you any mugs? Have you made any mugs? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's too, our... too big a name to fit on a mug. Coffee mug. Oh, you can have a yeah. big mug. <laughs> Check our Twitter later for membership options and sign up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just, just to finish off with the women, um, just a few of my favourite stats. So They kept saying all week that it was the first Elguna title for Shabini, but she did actually win the world there. So it's not like she'd never performed well in Elguna. Uh, yeah, but never won the Elguna tournament. I think winning a world championship in Elguna counts as being able to play well in Elguna. But it doesn't count as an Elguna champion. It, it doesn't. Just, it just means that you were crowned world champion in Elguna. I'd settle for either, to be honest. Oh, jeez, yeah. Absolutely. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. I, just want, I just want an Irish Open. That's all that matters, right? That, that's all that matters, man. <laughs> that's, that's all I want. <laughs> and another couple of stats, so that, I think it was widely reported that that was her 24th PSE title. But how, how's this? 16 of those 24 titles have been either platinum or world championships or world to like top level events. Average. But, um, <laughs> you compare that to Shibagi, who's actually won 43 titles overall, but only 19 of his have been platinum. So he's only got, he's got 19 titles more than Shibini, but only three titles more at top level Jeez. and then the, the final... be, imagine being held in that imagine having that record and then somebody saying you've only won 19 major titles <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. but the yeah. but the difference there probably being there are there's slightly more of that that high mid-level men's tournament probably i think there are events like canary wharf yeah and yeah and detroit had detroit, uh, windy yeah. city yeah. things Wind- like that um more city yeah yeah so he just has more events to win. He, that make, Bass that is another his, one. That just makes his ratio sound worse when, when, you, spit, when you spit your facts. He's yeah. also a little older. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. And then final stat on Shabini. She's now made his last seven Platinum Tournament finals. She's won five, including there's been three, tour, three Platinum Tournaments this season in the women's game, and she's won all three. So clearly, I know there was briefly talk about, uh, we spoke amongst ourselves about whether Hanya at one point would maybe have been world number one if the rankings had been different. Because I know they've changed the ranking system, but if, if it followed the old system, would Hanya be number one in the world? But the answer is clearly no. Yeah. Although I do think she'd be ranked higher than whatever she is. I think she's seven, which seems a bit harsh. Flip-flop back over to the men. I okay. I had someone someone asked me a question and I and I wanted to uh, throw it out on here, but someone said basically, you know, one there was a hundred and two minute match followed by a hundred and twenty three minute match being the Asal Abu Asal Dasuki. Move on quickly, he'll get going again. <laughs> Al Shabagi and Macon, one hundred and fifty eight minutes, which was obviously caused by I think change of court, um, but you know. Someone was saying, do they, do they need to change the rules again? Do they need to change the scoring? Do they need to change the 10? Like, is this getting too too long again? I don't think so. I think all of those matches had what I would refer to as extenuating circumstances, whether it was injury breaks or, like you say, I think the, the making match was listed at 150-odd minutes. Um, but actually, I think I read it was only about 80 minutes of actual play. 
So, no, I don't, I don't think that's an issue. I do think that more has to be done to, to make sure that the game is free-flowing and that we don't have these matches where there's a lot of decisions. But quite honestly, I think overall the, the game is headed in that direction. It's just one or two, probably just one player that's playing the game in that spirit. Yeah, I thought it was some great squash that I saw last week. It was, yeah. And I'm just just on your point there, Chris, I'm looking at the draw here in, in the round of uh, 16. You had from top to bottom, 59 minutes, 42 minutes, 48 minutes, 102 minutes, 36 minutes, 70 minutes, 56, 34. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, yeah, pretty much similar. You had a withdrawal. You had 24 minutes with another withdrawal, but then you had 59 minutes, 37 minutes, 33. Yeah, I think it's 41 I think it's I think it's pretty good. Just yeah, like you said, like Stu said, extenuating circumstances or yeah. No, two. I was I was there too. Just throwing it out there. Just a little parenthesis on the uh, Alguna. Two two great photographs were floating around social last week in the squash world. One of them, our very own Chris Sackvi there, sitting down, looking like you could have a Canadian Molson in each hand, ready for the uh, <laughs> ready for the tournament. When does that start? The Invitational handicap tournament. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, uh, Mass Beth Welding Outdoor uh, Steel Squash Court in Queens. Um, And they're doing a good job pumping everything on social and whatnot. But uh, I've played there once. And basically, anyone who went and kind of test drove the court and gave them a little feedback was invited to play in this invitational outdoor tournament. And it's their first one. And it's $5,000 cash prize, winner-take-all handicap tournament. Um, and I, I, I think I, there's just over 64 entries. So I think they're having some of those playing rounds this week. Um, I might not have to play for two or three weeks. Uh, yeah. Surely CD1. Yeah. Yeah, I think, <laughs> Nate, I think Nathan Lake, uh, he's, he's responded to some of our uh, – our Instagram posts and stuff. So he might be a listener. So he had the sad fortune of drawing me in his part of the draw. I feel bad for the guy, but, um, a know, listener. He's a former got, guest, <laughs> former <laughs> recurring, <laughs> recurring guest, but also I think steady listener, which is just as important. Um, yeah, I know, but handicap tournament, I have zero idea how they're going to figure this out there's i think people who have who have played squash once or twice in the event and then you have nathan lake as the top seed so it's it'll it'll be interesting everyone in between five grand for the winner huh happy days five five grand winner take all do it for the pod man yeah i told you guys i'd take you to vegas so i might be stuck with that which i think i think you had to make the quarterfinals in alguna so top eight in the world to make that sort of money so yeah, that's that's what we were. I was curious, you know, what that type of tournament would have, uh, where you need to get to make that kind of money. So if you win this, Chris, you get getting on the tour. Maybe getting on this outdoor squash handicap tour. I mean, probably probably more my speed. Yeah, sounds like the prize money is <laughs> just just as good anyway. So exactly. <laughs> and then the other photo that was floating around, I don't know if you guys saw, it, but there was a tournament out in Texas. And uh, Faraz Khan beat <laughs> yeah. uh, Spencer Lovejoy in the final. And there's a picture uh, of like Timmy Brownell, was it not? Oh, yeah, sorry, Timmy. Sorry, Timmy. Timmy. Yeah, I didn't mean to give that. Uh, yeah. So 
Timmy's got a lovely smile on his face. He's got his runners-up trophy. He's got all the organizers and, and the sponsor. <laughs> Happy days. Oh, smile around. Oh, life is great. We're putting up this tournament. And then you have the winner of the tournament, Faraz Khan, with his winner's trophy, looking absolutely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> he looked just angry. Oh, man. Maybe they didn't have his check ready. Well, I think yeah, one, somebody <laughs> tweeted the uh, photo and said it looks like he just found out how much it's going to co- how much he won, and then followed by how much he's, it's going to cost him to get back home again. <laughs> yeah, anyways, as you were. So, what do we think overall then about last week? Shabani's first uh, first title since way back at the Manchester Open. Um, that was amazing. Yeah. He was so good. He wasn't the final actually, but I I thought all the way through to, to the final, he looked like he was below his best. He looked really up for it, like he was really hungry and wanted to do well. But I didn't at no point did I think he was playing his best squash until he obviously produ- produced a great performance in the final. Yeah, um, I thought he got better as it went along. And probably would not a huge like I know not no everyone's not had that much squash over the last twelve months, but he's had a lot less. He said significantly less, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think physically he might not have looked as great as he did a couple of weeks ago in Black Ball. I'm sure like I'm sure he physically he wasn't bad, but by his standards and by the standards of like the very best squash players in the world, he was maybe just a little off. And that could have been just anything, just the nervous energy of competing at that level. But I thought he was brilliant. And the amount of obstacles that he was thrown his way, like changing courts and having to deal with that. And then, you know, to back up, I know it wasn't a 158-minute match, but it wasn't short. And against Ferez, who's, you know, he's made his last two events previous to this was a win and a final. So he's got a lot of competitive squish in and to overcome him. And then two hard matches, a relatively, I mean, you wouldn't say fresh, but certainly he had more. His opponent in the final had less miles on the clock that week and he was still able to come and produce probably his best performance of the week. And... Uh, Jeez, I thought he was class. I didn't see the quarterfinal against Macon because I didn't actually realise that they were streaming it when it got moved to the um, to the club court. There was a live. There was somebody put it. I didn't see it actually. I but there was a live stream on somebody's mm-hmm. phone apparently. Yeah, I, I saw there was a stream, but I didn't realise that until it was too late and the match was over. But um, but excluding that match, I just thought that he was sort of getting through, but never looking like I've obviously seen him play a lot over the years and and he's one of these guys that you can really tell when he's sharp and playing his best but he never really felt like he was quite there but he just seemed so determined all week um, a few of his early matches he seemed to be playing sort of mind games um, I think he he said a few things to your boy Arthur Baptiste What's in their mean? match um, but yeah he, he really he really came out in the final Looked like he clearly had a, an idea. I think he knew what to expect from Paul, um, partly based on the way Paul played against Tarek. He sort of slowed it down, and Shabagi seemed ready for that. And yeah, he was just clinical, especially he didn't really play particularly fast paced, but then when he did get his opportunities, he really uh, went for it. You mentioned something, Chris, about Paul Cole's whoop recovery. Yeah, he he posted on social his kind of, you know, recovery scores for the week. Um, It was just like a measure of, you know, kind of 
how your body's, how your body's statistics are showing you're recovered physically and, and uh, seem like his off days, he did have a chance to kind of get a bit of recovery, but then I think they play the semi in the final back to back. Correct. Yeah. And I yeah. think so. I think it went, uh, you know, he, he, he posted a red recovery. And so I was thinking, uh, or sorry, a, a red meaning low, but also he posted a 1% recovery, which might've been the day after the final, but it just showed how much, you know, even though he got through the first couple rounds, um, first three rounds, really all in around 50 minutes or less, and then 60 minutes in the semi, which like by his standards, isn't, isn't super crazy. I was just thinking maybe playing in this heat and this kind of humidity, like it does. I know from, you know, you go for a run on a hot day, your heart, your heart's working a lot harder. Your body's working harder. So it, it might've just caught up to him a little. Cause I thought uh, he definitely looked like he was playing a little slower than usual, even though, you know, his tactics are, are to sometimes uh, be the counter attacker, but he did look like he was trying to, play a lot of lobs from positions that if they don't get through the court, like Sherbaggy was punishing it. Right. And it, I think if you're playing with a little bit more pace on the ball, you can hit a little wider, get the ball around the person. Um, and Sherbaggy was uh, kind of taking advantage of that, but I think he would have probably made a switch if he could, he might've just been a bit, a bit toasted. What's your take fellas on, if you were competing and having a whoop, would you look at it? Like, I know if I looked at it, if I had a day that I needed to perform and I saw like a red zone recovery, like three, 4% of you thinking, well, I felt crap. Now I feel probably worse because now I know I feel, now I know I should <laughs> feel crap. I don't know. I, go ahead, Stuart. I, I never did anything like that. What I have done at some points was occasionally would wear a heart rate monitor during matches um, but I actually, even although you can theoretically look at what your heart rate is on your watch, I actually put tape over the watch so that it didn't distract me. So it was recording and then I could look at it after the match, but I wouldn't be distracted with it during the match. Because um, again, like you say, like it's one thing to feel tired and feel like you're, you're breathing out your ass, but it's another thing to look down at a watch and have it confirmed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think the difference might be Arthur because he's wearing it. You know, the big thing with whoop is you never take it off. So you're wearing it 24 seven. Yeah. Whoop's going to have to, we're going to have to put in a word here. We're going to need to get a sponsorship. I even got the t-shirt on right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I got the band. Uh, I think because he's wearing it during his training 365 days a year and he, and he puts in harder training sessions than, you know, any of his squash matches. I think he knows like a red recovery is not going to stop him from performing. Right. It, and who knows, he might not like Stuart said, he might not open up that app for four or five days. It's just tracking. It's just tracking it for him. But um, even if I know some people who have had some anxiety around like, Oh, I don't want to get a bad sleep because then I'm going to get a bad score. And then they get bad sleep because they're anxious about getting a bad sleep. Um, I think, I think, uh, yeah, if that's the case, he probably wouldn't wear it. I'm sure. I'm sure he just, you know, takes it all in stride. See, I, I only get like that. I'm like, oh man, I'd love another beer. But yeah, like, it's good. It's gonna take me out of the red zone or out of yeah. the green zone. But Whoop's gonna yell at me. Exactly. Yeah. On the 97 percent times that you've recorded alcohol, your heart rate increased 
12 beats per minute. <laughs> I mean, I feel like at this point, Whoop should be stepping forward. The, the founder is a former squash player anyway, so if, he's, if he is looking for a squash podcast to, to try and promote um, the brand amongst the squash public, then he knows where to find us. But you know what? You know what? Here's an idea. Maybe he can kind of like just, you know, manipulate the score for for the morning of the big match. It's like, you know what? You're really 1%, but I'm going to put you in the green at 68 until after your match. Make you feel good. Make you feel good. <laughs> yeah, give you a little bit of placebo. You think you feel bad, but you're going to be all right, son. I don't think you need a whip for that, though. You just need a, a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> whip can be your friend. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it was interesting how the, the men's event played out from the quarters because I thought the best performance in the quarterfinals was uh, Tarek Moman against Marsh. Um, Marsh had obviously done pretty well to get through to the quarters, but Moman absolutely destroyed him in that match. And I thought, okay, he's looking good. And then in the semis, he comes up against Paul, who then put in a similar performance against Tarek and looked flawless almost. And you're thinking, well... If he plays like this against Shibagi, the way he's covering the court, the way he's um, moving the ball around, he was so accurate in terms of his targets at the back of the court, even on the hot court. You think it's going to be tough for Shibagi to, to win this. And then Shibagi comes out with a, a pretty pretty much a masterclass, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I found that interesting. It was almost like each of the three of them peaked around too early, produced their best squash slightly before they probably wanted to. Um, but yeah, it's be what another six or seven weeks now for everyone to prepare for the worlds in Chicago, which be a big one, both in terms of obviously the prize money with it being the only million dollar tournament on the calendar, um, but also the, the prestige of being world champion. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Too bad it's not a handicap tournament where anyone can enter. And an outdoor court. <laughs> um, what, what do you think your handicap would need to be to give you a shot against uh, Shibagi or Paul? I, I was thinking about that the other day. Like, you know, uh, I think I'd at least need seven. I, 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 think, I think I can produce like, you know, 10, 10 good rallies. So if I could win four of the 10... Um, I'd be in, in okay shape, and then I think I'd be really tired, and I'd produce some terrible rallies. So you need a handicap of seven, but best of one is what you're saying. Because uh, <laughs> even with seven, you don't think you can do it over five games. It's a great point. It's a great point. Um, the way this tournament's doing it, I think it's like a one-point slider every game. So if you win, you you know you get a you go down a point, and the opponent goes up a point. So it's actually a two-point swing. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess if if you start with seven and then they go to kind of, you know, if they win, I go to eight, they go to negative one. I like my odds there. Um, tough to say. I remember Derek Ryan, <laughs> the, when he retired, they had like a, a handicap match against like a division two, division three. I can't remember his name, actually. I remember squash player in Pontefract. And if your man beat him, Derek had to wear <laughs> he had to wear like some lingerie and some high heels. <laughs> he lost 15, 13 in the fifth. Oh, he was raging. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. He had this like pink uh, corsage. Is that what you call it? I don't even know. 
and uh, and some tights and, uh, <laughs> and some heels. <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad about Derek, but are you sure he didn't deliberately lose just to sort of no. indulge his, his little? <laughs> oh yeah, you know secret what? pleasure. You know what? Yeah, that very well could have been could have been the case. You know, upon reflection, certainly at the time, it didn't come across that way. He was. <laughs> Raging. It's a good actor, is Derek. <laughs> Especially when you give him a role to play. <laughs> oh man, well, that's so funny. Um, just before we wrap up, um, a couple of things. Probably worth commenting on uh, Dusuki. I know that he's been kind of the form player or one of the form players recently, but I thought it was a good sign that he came back from two love down against Vassal. Um I think in, in previous matches, he would have let some of the stuff that had gone on in the first two games get to him. But um, it's definitely a sign of his progress mentally that he's able to keep fighting from two love down. Uh, that was actually the first time in Asal's career he'd ever lost from two love up. Um, so, yeah, credit there. He did look a little bit flat in the next round against Shibagi, I thought. Um, certainly at the start of the match and then he kind of seemed to play, play his way into it, but I don't know if that took something out of him, but it certainly wasn't through lack of effort or um, some of the things that we've seen in the past from him. Yeah. Um, and then final thing on Shibagi was just that, so he obviously lost to uh, uh, Yusuf Ibrahim in the, was it Qatar last season? I think it was. And then he lost to Joe Macon in the black ball quarters. So that was the first time since 2018 that he hadn't reached at least the semis in two consecutive events. And if it had happened again at this tournament, which very nearly could because he went to five with Joe Macon again, it would have been the first time since 2012 that he'd went three tournaments in a row without making at least the semis, which I thought was pretty pretty strong signal of his uh, his consistency, the fact that he's just always in amongst the, the mix for titles. And even if he doesn't always win them, he's always making finals or semis. Yeah, I mean, geez, he's been in the top two, three in the world for, geez, since Hector was a pup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can find out, actually. Give me a sec. I'll see if I can find his... Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're not you're not CFAX, you just Google. You just Google it. Just you need to know where to Google it. When was the last time Shibagi was outside the top three in the world? Are you just gonna give us an answer or do we get to guess? You can guess. 2015. Guess. No, 2014. 2014, yeah. Hmm. March, March of 2014, he was only ranked four. And then the following month he got to three. And then he's held the top three. He's pretty much held the top two, apart from a spell in 2017 where he was at three for a while. That's unbelievable. So yeah, he can, he, you know, geez, that's unbelievable. So you're looking at seven years, over seven years now that he's been in the top three. He's been in the top ten for and uh, ten and years. not and not. And not playing a significant chunk of tournaments over the last couple of seasons. <laughs> I'd say he's in the top 10 over 10 years. Yeah, 10, 10 and a half years exactly in the top 10 consecutively. Wow. So, 
Yeah, certainly. And he won the Irish Open. <laughs> Did he? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Good about that. Oh yeah, because I played him that that year, and he he beat Thierry in the final. We 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 had a, we had a pretty pretty close match. I mean, he might have only been twelve, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> he lost to Thierry in the final. Oh, that's right, he did. Oh. He's 2009. Still 2009. So what age was he? He would have been 18, I believe. 18, so, yeah. yeah. Um, no, he's never won the... Still needs to go back and win the Irish Open title to complete the career. 43 titles, but none of them are the Irish Open. You know, uh, it's not complete yet, so... Yeah. Maybe he can, maybe he can get the net. He's would it be his second world title? I think it is. He's, he's only got one world title. So when his second world open or world championships in Chicago, and then the big one, the Irish. Maybe skip the British uh, just to prepare for it. Yeah, I think, the, I think they're they're trying to bring back the big Canadian Open tournament too. So uh we just need to we might have to call that like the the atc podcast like trifecta world champion if you can hold a an irish a canadian and a scottish national or uh you know psa open there you go that that'd be that's that's no mean feat yeah <laughs> i'm trying to think maybe maybe jonathan or or pedro might have done that once upon a yeah, time well, yeah we'll have to we'll have to check back here wanna here definitely won a scottish open what year? 99? 2001. Bummer. Um, there was an Irish Open in 99 and 2000 and he won both. Okay. And I'm pretty sure the Canadian Classic was the equivalent of a Canadian Open. So Peter probably has one off the... But in the yeah. same calendar year. <laughs> oh, you don't need to win it in the same calendar year. What are yeah, you doing? That's like a, so it's like a career. You're you're like, about a career are you like slam. the godfather if you win that? You're like the godfather of ATC, but yeah, you're I think like, we, can still put him, we can there's still probably, put him on the Hall of Fame list. There's probably only been one year when all three were held in the same year. <laughs> yeah. Quite, yeah, so there you go. Even more, It's even more impressive than what Rod Laver did and Serena Williams. <laughs> did Serena Williams do it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, she did. 2000. Oh. No, she, she didn't. She she did it like within the same twelve month period. Yeah, so she held them all consecutively, but not. Yeah, I know what you mean. Serena Slam. I think uh, I think Steffi Graf won all four in the same she calendar year. Did nineteen eighty nine? Oh, I would say eighty eight. <laughs> Google it quickly. Who am I to go against CFAX? But now that I know, you just Google everything. I just like. Let's wrap up since no one actually cares about any of this. Except us, obviously. Yeah, take us home. I'm all out of takes. Breaking news. 88. Who cares? All right. Nice one. Um, All right. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, check us out on social, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And yeah, happy scratching.